Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome back to <laughs> our ancestral podcast, Allison. I'm so glad that we made it to the microphone tonight. <laughs> yeah, I made it for sure. I got up on time and I'm here. I've had my breakfast. I'm ready to go. I think we're getting into the groove on the timing a little bit. It It's starting mm. to feel more uh, habitual for me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. So this is going to be a fun conversation. I'm going to, I've got three books over here. You've got three books over there. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about three books that we are really loving. But first, I want to know, you hinted to me that you had something interesting for breakfast. So <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> it's interesting to me. So I'll start with a, with a less interesting bit. It was leftovers, but it was really the most amazing combination of leftovers because there were four different things four different carbs in my bowl and then some additions and they were four different kind of processes so I had the first thing I had was some leftover swats which are fermented oats that I make we had some Mm. of those yesterday so some of those leftover they're really funky this time I did it slightly differently so they're really fermented and sour Mm. and then there weren't so many of those so I added in some chocolate barley that I had baked in order to make a bread and there was some left over. And chocolate then barley chocolate in, barley. It's it's um it's, it's a malted barley that ooh. is used in beer making predominantly, but it's really dark and has kind of chocolate flavours to it. It's lovely. You can't have too much of it because it's very, very smoky. So I added a bit of that in. And then I had some leftover a thing called Pongle, which I don't know if I've pronounced it right, but um on Instagram um, someone I'm friends with who is an Indian fermenter and makes the most amazing things. I'll put her, we'll put her details in the show notes. Um, she's been kind of handholding me through making pongal, which is fermented rice, which is cooked up and then oil with tempered spices is put in it. And so that's kind Ooh. of soft rice, really kind of porridgey with a bit of turmeric in. And so I had some of that, a spoonful of that. And then I had some... Turkish Boza, the fermented millet drink I make. I did an experiment this week where I fermented it with half the sugar to see what would happen. And it came out really tangy and quite sour, but very nice. So I put a spoonful (laughs) or two of that in and I stirred it all around and heated it up. And it made this just yummy, delicious porridge with all these different flavours in. And then I put my usual things I like on porridge, which is linseed and olive oil and miso and nuts. And it just was these four, these four kind of processes come together and the flavors were absolutely delicious. Yum, yum. That just sounds incredible and so um, global. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got Scotland, we've got England, we've got Turkey, we've got India, we've got loads of Italy with the olive oil, Japanese, Japanese miso. Yeah, so many different techniques. From That's fantastic. From I mean, many, the, what, many when ancestors. else... In the history of the world, would somebody have had that range in their bowl for yeah. breakfast? <laughs> we are, we are very lucky. 
How about you? What did you have for your uh, supper tonight? Oh boy. <laughs> okay, so I I um, let's just uh, tell the listeners right now. <laughs> I did not Dear. tell Allison what happened. Yeah, before, I'm waiting. So this is news for her. I um. I haven't had dinner yet. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. It's 11 it's o'clock now. at night for me. <laughs> so I think I'm sort of turning into, it's sort of turning into a fasting night, but yeah, um, which is fine. <laughs> uh, Tiffany, who has the amazing Instagram, she did the Very Farmish Challenge with us, as you remember. Mm. And yeah. she has a farm and she had some goats and sheep that she was planning to butcher later in the month. And then all of a sudden, the mm. butcher called. It, it's a mobile abattoir. And they everybody's booked out super, super far. But they suddenly called her and said, we have a cancellation in the morning. Do you want us to come out? And she said, <gasps> yes. Yeah. So she had asked me, do you want any parts? And I said, oh, of course. Yes, <laughs> oh, you know me. So I dashed out there with coolers for kidneys and hearts and livers and heads. Oh, wow. So my day changed very suddenly, <laughs> which you know mm. I love. Um, that's kind of the, one of the, um, Im I think a very important aspect to acknowledge with farming or if you're really living on land or off off the land mm. is that things happen outside of your scheduled time frame and sometimes yeah. you just gotta go with it and throw your plans to the wind and jump and so i they they did not skin the heads so <laughs> so i come i've i have never how many did you have used <laughs> six <laughs> Um, oh, okay. And what I've animal? I've never used uh, a goats, four goats and two sheep. And then she kept okay. two heads for herself. So I brought home six okay. and she kept two. Right. Um, so I came home, I packaged all the organs up separately, labeled them, put them in the freezer. And mm -hmm. then um, Gary and I got to work on the heads. And I had called a friend of mine on the way home who has 12 kids and knows everything. Literally, she knows everything. 12 kids. I'm serious. Oh. <laughs> And she grew up in Mexico and she knows a lot of traditional, really very ancestral Mexican cooking. And mm, I had, I, I, it's very different in the different regions. So I'm not sure exactly what region she mm -hmm. um, is most familiar with. However, I called her and I said, I know you made us soup with the goat head before but i can't remember the name and she said oh it's called pozole so she quickly mm -hmm. told me over the phone how to make pozole and i asked her all the questions i had which weren't very many because it's pretty straightforward and <laughs> and i said by the way the goats aren't skinned how, you know do i just burn mm -hmm. the fur off and she said yeah you could she told me a couple different ways so Mm -hmm. Let me tell you. This is a good woman to know. Wow. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a really good woman to know. You go out there and just watch her do her thing. And it's just amazing to watch. Um, so I <laughs> I came home with, you know, coolers full of heads. And the kids come running outside because they know I'm bringing home body parts. And um, so everybody's sitting at the table eating dinner while I'm standing at the end of the table, you know, packaging up organs mm -hmm. nobody was phased it does not nobody batted an eyelash 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, Gary and I went outside to try and burn the fur off. Now, if you are a listener and you know how to do this the right way, (laughs) feel free to find me. Please tell us. (laughs) Find me on Instagram at Farm and Hearth and please send me a message (laughs) how you would do this because first we tried burning it with a propane torch. That did nothing. Then we tried laying it on Mm -hmm. the barbecue. That didn't really do anything. (laughs) So we got the weed burner and we laid a um, like a, a grill on the gravel and just blasted these heads with the weed burner. Um, okay. There's got to be an easier way. I mean, how do people <laughs> used to do it? That's what I said. Way. I said, how do they do this? I mean, yeah. I'm trying to do it quickly because I want to get them into cold. Yeah. You know, and <clears throat> I don't know. We're... <laughs> I really don't know. And anybody who knows what what to do is probably at home crying into their cup of broth right now. I'm Mm. sorry. So here I am scrubbing at these um, heads. And I I don't know if you've ever cooked a head before, Allison. But no, I haven't. (laughs) The the more you cook them, the more they grin at you. So... (laughs) I've, I've seen that with fish heads. A bit. Yeah, it's I've it's quite an adventure. Heads. It was it was, I mean, it was a learning process. I got all of them done except for one, and I'm I'm in the kitchen with the scrubbing brush, scrubbing off. You know, once you kind of charcoal all the fur, then you got to scrub it off. And so I'm scrubbing okay. it in the sink, and um, I have a little clock on the windowsill, so I keep looking at it and thinking, "Oh my goodness, I'm running out of time." <laughs> So I went as quickly as I could, and uh, um, dinner went out the window. <laughs> yeah, my dinner never happened. <laughs> mm. But it is kind of funny because for breakfast I had fermented oatmeal, so I guess kind of the same ah, as you. Okay. Um. So anyway, so that was. And my... have you put all the heads? Have you put all the heads in the fridge in the freezer now? All were in the fridge. Gary was working on the last one when I jumped onto this. I kept thinking, I'm okay. going to have to send Allison an email and tell her I'll be late. But I thought, no, I really want to try to push to that time and just get it done. I'm kind of glad we had this time because Thank it made you. me work faster. But yeah, yeah. Um, I'm very, very, very excited because pozole is delicious. It, it, you make like a chili paste and um, it has a hominy in it. And it's, it's like a big mm-hmm. red stew with chunks of meat and... I've heard about it because there's actually a a, there's a chocolate ancestral preparation called something very similar and it said don't confuse it with the other (laughs) so I've actually heard of it yeah I guess that makes sense since uh, cacao is mostly from South America is not yeah yeah so anyways that was my adventure today and um Oh, I want to see a picture of the pozole when you've done it. <laughs> I will. I will share them. I will overshare them with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's move on with the topic of today. I am just so eager to know about your books. So you've got three. I'll say just pick the one you want to jump onto, and mm-hmm. um, share the title and the author, and then mm-hmm. I want to hear about it. Okay, cool. So I'm focusing on three books that I'm reading at the moment, which um, is not unusual for me to be reading three books at the same time. (laughs) And they're all really exciting. The first one, uh, which I want to share, is a book by Sandor Katz, 
the kind of godfather of fermenting. And it's his World Fermentation book. And someone bought me a copy of this uh, before I had my son. I think it was probably 2013. And somewhere along the mini sort of marathon of moves we've had from country and back and different places, it it went. Um, And I kind of regretted that I got rid of it. And then recently I was in a bookshop in Florence and I saw it and I thought, oh, I'd really like to read this again. And as I was flicking through it, I saw a lot of things that I knew how to do already, but I also saw a lot of new things. And it made me realise how much I'd come on since 2013 because back then I was well, I was doing sauerkraut and I was also doing kefir. I was right. fermenting some grains, but nothing like what I'm doing now. And it, it kind of helped me confirm that small steps in the direction you want to go make huge differences. So I got kind of excited looking at it and thought, oh, I really, I really want to read this again to to kind of cement my knowledge about what I do already and also to get excited about some new stuff. So... Um, I got another copy and for those of you who don't know Wild Fermentation is the recipe book really that Sandor Katz has written he's written other books on fermentation um, but those other books generally don't have recipes in this one is a recipe book and it has a really wide coverage so it, it goes through vegetables it goes through drinks it goes through dairy grains beans vinegar wine beers it, it covers almost every angle you could think of for fermenting and what I love there's two things I love about it the first thing is his enthusiasm which just pours out of the book yes and the second thing is his easygoing attitude because I think a lot of people think fermenting has to be complicated, it, you have to be careful, right. you have to do this, that and the other. And and he really makes it clear throughout the book that you just, for example, in, in the realm of hygiene, things just need to be clean. You know, yes. they don't need to be ridiculously sterilised to the point of hospital environment. They just need to be clean. <laughs> and he, he manages to impart through... Um, the details of his recipes but also through his prose that enthusiasm and that easygoing attitude uh, that his writing is wonderful and the pictures in it are in the second edition which is what I've got are really beautiful Ooh, I've got pictures? two yeah yeah this you haven't got the new edition no have you? I have the, the first, first edition. edition yeah back in 2013 someone bought me the first edition and I remembered just the recipes you know black and white text but right. this new edition has pictures and new recipes and new extra bits of writing it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Wow. I wanted to share a couple of quotes that really kind of illustrate um, the two things that I love about it. So his enthusiasm and his easygoing attitude. So the first one is, you'll see it's about enthusiasm when I read it. <laughs> he says, this book is my song of praise and devotion to fermentation. For me, fermentation is part health regime, part gourmet art, part practical food preservation, part multicultural adventure, part activism, even part spiritual path, as it affirms again and again the underlying interconnectedness of all. My daily routine is structured by the rhythms of these transformative life processes. Sometimes I feel like a mad scientist tending to as many as a dozen different bubbling fermentation experiments at once. Sometimes I feel like a game show host, 
would you like to taste what's in crock number one <laughs> or trade it for what lies buried under crock number two? Sometimes I feel like a holy roller evangelist, zealously spreading the word about the glorious healing powers of fermented foods. I'm getting goosebumps reading it. That Amazing. I, re- I remember that quote. <laughs> I specifically remember the mad scientist line. Uh. Yeah. And that I love, I love, I, I think it's significant that you and I both have a book from <laughs> him tonight. Yeah. But I ah. absolutely love that. I did not know there was pictures in the second edition. That's real. That yeah. makes me want to go peek at a copy of that the second edition. I showed Rob one last night because there's a, maybe I'll send you a picture of it. There's yes. a picture of um, a man um, from probably somewhere like Mongolia, I think, who's proudly holding up his equivalent of a Chinese yeast ball that he uses to make his beer. Wow. And his face is amazing. I mean, wow. just the the life and the joy and yeah. the aliveness in him. It just, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Some beautiful photography. Wow. I, I, the other I quote, love that book yeah. that you're holding. That book you're holding, I'm really glad that you picked it because... <laughs> Mm. I had a really hard time whittling down to three, and the only thing that helped was that you took that book. <laughs> you couldn't do it. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have definitely put that book on my stack. Yeah, it's a, it's an absolute Bible, really, for anyone who it is who wants to ferment and who wants to experiment with those ferments because the recipes aren't set in stone. He says, try this, try adding yes. this. You could swap this up for this. You could do this. And and that's the kind of recipe that I like because yes. I'm I'm terrible at following recipes. I just don't do it. Me I'm too. automatically thinking, well, I'm not going to buy that. I'll change no. it for this. Or, <laughs> you know, I haven't got any of that. Oh, that doesn't matter. I'll do this. I use I them, never follow them solely as a jumping off point. Absolutely. as just a like a trampoline. I, and I he sort of completely gives permission for that in his books. He says yeah. over and over in the books, this is a general guide you can change you know and he'll say you know i did it this one way my other friend did it at the other yeah <laughs> did it yeah. <laughs> my other friend did it the other way and yeah he he definitely gives you permission let me give you the other quote which is about his kind of easygoing simplicity attitude yes he says the experts find my techniques primitive because they are fermentation is easy Anyone can do it, anywhere, with the most basic tools. Humans have been fermenting longer than we've been writing words, making pottery, or cultivating the soil. Fermentation does not require state-of-the-art facilities, vast expertise, or laboratory conditions. You do not need to be a scientist, able to distinguish specific organisms and their enzymatic transformations, nor a technician maintaining sterile environments and exact temperatures. You can do it in your kitchen using equipment you already have. Amen, King Sandor. Yeah, exactly. So there's loads of kind of recipes that have sparked me in there. And um, he talked about Nuka brand, which I've not heard about before, which is like a a bran pickling bed that you use a bit like a sand pit and you bury your vegetables in it and you squash wow. it all down and then you get fermented vegetables. And I'm trying to think, can I do that with the bran that's left over from my Scottish oatmeal ferment? Can I make a kind of a pickling bed out of it? Right. And then there's uh, an Egyptian um, beer called Booza and it involves making bread at the same time as sprouting and malting the grains and then using the bit of bread that you've made 
in addition to the malted grains to make this kind of really lightly alcoholic, fizzy, sour, tart beer. And I'm thinking I could make it with spelt because that's local and it's a grain that we love. Oh, yes. So I'm, I, I read it to Rob last night and said, oh, I'm, I fancy having a go at this. Would you, would you want to drink it? And he, he's on side. So Absolutely. <laughs> hopefully. I remember I'll as have a go at that. when I was a teenager, I was so obsessed. Well, I still am. But ancient Egypt was my absolute obsession. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. heart and soul. I wrote an encyclopedia about it. <laughs> I wow. wrote novels about it, you know. And one of the things that I learned about was that back then they, you know, archaeologists have found from back then all their straws that have... Um, kind of a filter in them so like a clay straw Mm -hmm. with you know perforated holes that they would use to drink that beer to strain out the sort of thick chunks of bread Ah, interesting of course i thought oh that's so disgusting you know now (laughs) as an adult i've found where you can buy those straws and i'm like hey i want to make this i will never go Oh, I'd have to tell you something that I wasn't going to tell you. In there, Uh there's a recipe for um, chicha, which is a Mexican beer, where you get the corn kernels. And the difference between beer and other fermented drinks is that beer is made of complex carb and the yeasts can't feed on complex carb. So you need to break it down to simple carb in order to make the beer. That's what malting is. You know, you malt the grains to a simple carb. But the Mexicans used to do it with corn by chewing the corn. Oh, yes. And that the saliva (laughs) and the enzymes break it down into simple carbs in your mouth. And then they get the bits that they've kind of chewed up and they throw them in a pot. And everyone sits around in a circle and does it. And then they make beer from these kind of chewed up bits of corn. They They do boil it later in the process. So it hasn't got all the horrible things in it. But the kind of the idea of that is so alien to what we would it think is. of as a it process is. that's acceptable for making something that we're going to imbibe. Right. And you're talking about, you know, the, the kind of the yuck factor. Maybe you want to share that <laughs> bit with you. I, I do remember also reading as a kid about uh, a South American tribe. I forget if it was Mayan or Aztec, but I believe Mayan. And they also would sit and chew this a substance i don't recall if it was a root or a bark or something and yeah they would sit around and spit it into the pots and the women would cook it and of course i thought ah how terrible you know yeah but if that's you know what you grow up with you you don't think it's yeah you know anything weird. I, I mean when when i asked this friend of mine if i you know try, should i take the skin off or should i just try to burn the fur off and she said well the skin is you know usually considered a delicacy mm. so you know it just depends um yeah on it's what, amazing what's to i feel very i'm glad i bought the book again and i feel very um, privileged to be able to read about all these yes. traditions and then yes. you know bring some of them hopefully bring some of them to life in my kitchen there's a lot so of that, that's my book number it. one that's beautiful i'm enjoying it and i'd recommend it for sure <laughs> me too I recommend it too. It would be in the three that I brought tonight if you hadn't. <laughs> yeah. You hadn't uh, had first dibs on it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I, as I alluded, I had a really hard time chopping down my books to three, but I decided, you know, we'll do more book podcasts in the future. So yes, um, that did help me. I, I brought four books in with me tonight. 
just because I still couldn't decide. And then I finally decided at the last second which three to do. So we'll have to wait for another podcast to find out what that one was that I had to take off the stack. But the first book I brought, I have mentioned once before on this podcast very briefly, but it's... Um, I, I find this to be a very, very, very helpful book for living right off of the land. And if you're shopping from farms, then by default, you are eating seasonally. So you're eating the food that's being harvested at that time. You may or may not have capabilities or storage space to put food by for other, you know, to eat things out of season. But if you are just shopping at farmer's markets in the moment, then you are definitely getting what's just in season. So this book isn't a specifically ancestral book. Um, and I don't even know that I've ever heard anybody ever mention it else. But it's called 12 mm -hmm. Months of Monastery Soups. I, I remember actually, you mentioned it before. Yeah, I don't know anything about the guy who wrote it. But I do know that he's a monk of some fashion and he um, cooks their meals out of their garden in the monastery. Mm -hmm. So he has the book divided into 12 chapters for the 12 months and every chapter just has the simplest, simplest soup recipes. So there will be a list of ingredients and just a few words of instruction and then mm -hmm. he'll have a little um historical note at the bottom which the, you and i both love footnotes i know allison yeah and those are really fun he just talks about history either sometimes of the soup sometimes he just talks about something he does to dress up the soup sometimes it's a proverb or a quote or um a history of the ingredient i don't know it's just really it, it's just a very very simple book it's not complicated for somebody who feels overwhelmed by the you know 45 pages of instructions that some of these modern cookbooks come with and you know 17 step-by-step -step photographs this yeah. is the book i have been cooking out of this book since i was probably 13 years old and wow i'm on my third copy of the book owing to various mishaps um but i have made so many of the recipes and i have loved them all and i mean because i've been making them for so many years of my life they are literally comfort food to me because i remember cooking them you know as a yeah. kid um in the kitchen cooking for my family and I don't know, just tons and tons of good memories. So, um, is he um, from America? Is uh, he a monk somewhere in the US or is he from somewhere else in the world? Do you know? He sounds very French. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have looked into him a little bit before I said this, but I, I don't know. His name is French. A lot of the quotes are okay. French. So I'm looking. But is it. <laughs> Is it published by an American house and has it got kind of cups measurements for the recipes? Yes, it Or is does. it grams? It's, okay, it's from so it's a, American, it's, it's it's from a publishing market. house in Missouri or at any, at any rate, okay. this edition is perhaps there's, um, I've had three different editions of it over, well, one edition was my sister's. So then when she moved out, I had to buy my own copy 
and then that <laughs> copy got destroyed in a kombucha explosion um, <laughs> as as happens it was a gallon of kombucha um so then i had to get a new copy so apparently it's been published multi i mean republished multiple times so and are the recipes vegetarian uh they're not exclusively vegetarian but okay so anytime that there's anytime there's meat you could literally just not put the meat in and then there are Mm. occasional uses of um dairy things which if you've been cooking without dairy for any length of time you could immediately swap them out um but for the most part it's vegetables i mean for the overwhelming majority of it and then he'll say use broth and you could use vegetable broth or yeah a meat broth um he doesn't always specify he sometimes does but usually he his base is water and he'll use herbs and vegetables i prefer to use Mm -hmm. bone broth i always do Mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of the recipes that i make and i'll add shredded meat at the end um, just to mm-hmm. bulk it up or I'll add um, one of my favorite things I le- learned from my cousin is I'll make a big pot of soup and then at the very end I'll add some peeled hard-boiled eggs and so then you get a big pot of soup with a boiled egg in the top or... that's a really eastern European tradition lots oh, of eastern okay. European um, nations add hard-boiled eggs to soups before serving oh I love them and I, I didn't know where it was from but I love them in it or just mm. drop a po- poach a couple eggs in it that, that works too yeah sometimes. in it yeah yeah so that's my uh first book 12 months of my soups what's your favorite recipe in there give us give us an Ooh. idea of something that you've made a lot or you like in it well the one i've made the absolute most would be calda verde the green yeah. soup it's cabbage soup and i mm-hmm. have made it probably i don't know hundreds of times um it is the simplest soup it's the soup i make when i have nothing (laughs) so you can use water or broth and cabbage and potatoes and onion and essentially that's your soup and then i have made variations with i've served it over rice i've served it with shredded chicken i've served it with noodles i've shredded cheese on top I've added different herbs, um, different vegetables, depending on what I have. But it always kind of goes around the core. It's kind of my stone soup, you know? Yeah, sounds nice. We've got a lot of cabbages here at the moment. Um, We buy kind of from local um, farmers. And really, the mainstay of their offering at the moment is cabbage. So we've got purple cabbages and big savoy cabbages and light green cabbages and pointed cabbages. So our fridges, as we went to the market the other day, full of cabbage. (laughs) We need to make that soup. I am so obsessed with cabbage. I feel I feel like it is just it's a the most veg, versatile thing out there. I'll send you the recipe. <laughs> so so sweet. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to give it a go. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm curious to know what you have as the next book on your stack, Allison. Yeah. Thank you. The next book is called Naturally Fermented Bread. And the author is Paul Barker, who's an English um, baker who has a bakery in London called Cinnamon Square Bakery. And the Cinnamon interesting Square kind of story bakery? how Cinnamon Square Bakery. It's oh, yeah, a nice name. Wow. I think you can find them on Instagram under Cinnamon Square Bakery. Um, oh boy. <laughs> I found it 
because I follow um, Irina Georgescu on Instagram, who's a Romanian cookbook author. And she often does IGTV lives. And she did an IGTV live with this Paul Barker from Cinnamon Square. And in it, she talked about how she was using borscht, B-O-R-S, which is a Romanian fermented water made from wheat bran and corn kind of similar to what I'm doing with my soans which is oat as the carbohydrate but making a fermented liquid from it and she was using that liquid to make bread and it tied into this um, naturally fermented bread book which is a book about um, bread but slightly different it's not focused on sourdough it's focused on what Paul calls botanical breads, which is using yeast water, which is a liquid that you make by fermenting plant material. So it could be just fermenting carrots. It could be fermenting wow. flowers. It could be fermenting borscht, like Irene Jodescu was. And then you create a liquid, which is essentially what I'm doing with my oat ferment with the soans and the swats. And then you use that to feed flour to make sourdough starter and then you use the starter from that and more of the yeast water to leaven a bread so for example he has a recipe for a magnolia flour bread which is he had a magnolia tree in his garden and he built a fermented water using magnolia flowers and a bit of honey to get a fizzy bubbly water that tastes slightly of magnolia flowers and then he's using that to make a starter and then some extra magnolia water in a bread that then basically has been risen, leavened by magnolias, which wow. is just amazing. <laughs> so I got really excited fantastic. when I watched this IGTV live. I was like, wow, this is a, a, a sort of a angle of bread that I haven't experimented with and I I particularly wanted to use the water that I get from my fermented oats to make a starter to make a bread with just the fermented oat liquid so I treated myself to the book for Christmas and um, it it's it's full of ideas again it's a kind of a similar thing to the Sandal Katz book that I was talking about that it it fires your imagination into thinking, okay, well, what have I got around me? What have I got a lot of? What have I got too much of? What is about to go funny? What can I ferment and make a flavoured liquid? And then ha- what will the bread taste like if I if I make a bread with it? And wow. um, so I'm hoping to experiment this, this year with some of these ferments. Sadly, because I don't have a garden, I, 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 there's a magnolia tree like on the road next to ours but I, I can't just go and like nick the flowers <laughs> off this tree. Um, I think, you know, if I had a garden with lots of different things in, I'd be kind of pulling stuff up. But still, I'll, I'll find what I can make. And um, yeah, his enthusiasm is what led him to this path of writing the book in the first place. And that is very clear through the book. And that there's only just one, a one sentence quote that I wanted to share that um, kind of says it all, which is, he says passion is the unseen ingredient of great bread and I think that's true I mean it's it's a great food anything like that that when you add that passion and that spark to Mm -hmm. something that's what elevates food from kind of nice to wonderful 
whether it actually is wonderful in a critic's eye or not that's not the that's not the um point you know yes it imbues something into the food that makes it magical and um yeah so there's there's a big big chunk about um how to make the liquids and all these different examples of different types of liquids and um, but there's also a, a bit on basic bread making so if you've never made sourdough or naturally fermented breads before then there's the techniques in there that will will help you there's also i think six six or seven or eight um normal in quotes sourdough <laughs> recipes because obviously this guy owns a bakery and he's got award-winning breads you know some of his breads have won awards so he wow. he has lots of sourdoughs that he makes as well and the first thing that i've made from it he has a recipe for a Lithuanian keptinis, I don't know if I've pronounced it right, bread, which is where my recent obsession with mortars come from. Because in Lithuania, they make a beer called keptinis using malt. And then oh. they use, you can use the spent malt from it in your breads. And I think, you know, traditionally bread and beer have been tied so closely in civilizations. And a lot, I think in the past, certainly in the UK, bread makers would have got their yeast from beer makers and yes. I saw that and I thought oh I've forgotten how much I like malt because I cooked with malt before in bread and so he started me off having a go at that one and then I sort of got some malt and I found the chocolate malt and I've been making breads with chocolate malt and nuts in and and there's also a rye bread in there a standard rye bread sourdough that I've made so there's normal sourdoughs. There's a huge section on these flour and vegetable sourdoughs made from botanical water. And there's also basic techniques which will help. And it's all, yeah, said with such enthusiasm and such possibility for you going away and thinking, okay, well, I've got these in my garden. Let's try it and let's see what happens. And I think it's wonderful that it's a, it's a whole new area of exploration that is not as wide known as you know a sourdough starter <clears throat> and now there's a book that can help us that can help me <laughs> wonderful i was i was following irena on instagram but i had mm. never heard of cinnamon square bakery and <laughs> i'm talking about you know my four ingredient mm. cabbage soup and you've got magnolia water bread. <laughs> <laughs> but you know something you said about the passion for the bread mm. Actually, the book that I pulled out of my stack to wait for the next round, there's a mm -hmm. quote in there where um, a very famous baker, I believe he's a French baker, somebody had asked him, what makes your bread so good? And he said, it's how much you love it. <laughs> yeah, and he said, totally you, true. you can tell the baker who loves their bread. And so then ever since that day, I had been struggling so much with making bread up until that point and I was using that book and then um, I would just pour my love into the bread and I have had no no issues since I don't know it I think it's two there's two kind of levels on that and I it's interesting because we're we're working, you know, with our six-year-old son at the moment and seeing how he's interacting with homework from school that he goes to two days a week and how, how he's interacting with stuff that I do for him, kind of wild homeschooling. And it's interesting that, you know, if you have that passion for something, 
then acquiring a skill is a different matter because you're so passionate about it that you'll practice the skill again and again and again and you just love it so your love goes into it but also you find joy in the in the repetition of the skill so if I go out and do something with my son where we go out and collect sticks and we use it to help him learn to count he's repeating something but he's doing it with this passion compared to sitting at a desk with a book looking at how to count and you know if you if you have that passion not only is there something magical that transfers when you're doing the process but you have such enthusiasm for repeating it that you you just pick up skills like you're magnetized you know you just do it and so you're getting both sides of how to make something good you're getting the magic and you're getting the the skill at the same time through that passion and you're almost about to push me over the edge of my other favorite subject besides food which is shall we call it wild parentation (laughs) Um, Charlotte Mason and her philosophy of education which is exactly what you just stated that she says that we and and I think this translates to our books and I'm, I'm noticing the theme in books you and I have chosen but she says that we so often perceive the you know 12 years of education as the time to fill the child's brain with knowledge and she said It's less important that you teach them a specific fact as you give them the passion for learning because what you don't want to do is have 12 years of your life where you learn. You want to have an entire century, a lifetime of passionate learning. And I think the best books, and I'm definitely noticing this theme in the books you and I both chose, those are books that you and I have both said, well, I didn't really follow it exactly, but it's spun you off on a path it just helped to imbue you with the passion for whatever the topic was and um just instead of telling you specifically how to do a specific precise thing it just sort of sparked the passion and you read the wild fermentation book years ago and you (laughs) you know fermenting for however long until now you've got the book again and I don't know. I think I think that's beautiful. I apologize if you can hear my son. You can see how wild and enthusiastic he is. Oh. He's having a He's <laughs> having a moment like... upstairs. <laughs> maybe maybe it's come out on the recording, maybe it hasn't. Well, that's but, okay. Yeah, he's passionate too. Sometimes passionate it goes into yes. to expl- <laughs> exploding. <laughs> I thought we might end up having some of the kids on the Zoom call tonight because um uh they they actually ended up Well, I told you that I was sitting upstairs because of all the hubbub, but because Gary and I were so busy working on these goat heads, the kids fell asleep on the couch Mm. downstairs waiting for us. (laughs) So one is in the bedroom and two are downstairs. And I thought, oh, what if they don't even go to sleep before we... (laughs) Oh, but they did. So that worked out. (laughs) Cool. Okay. So that's that's all I want to say about that wonderful book that again it's another one that I'd recommend and I don't yes. actually keep a lot of books I haven't done because I've moved so much and I I'm far more comfortable with letting go of things than I am with keeping collections of things so until re- very recently I haven't really had that many books with me but it's certainly one that I I'm really pleased to have on my shelf and that I'll go back to and be inspired by again and again I think 
Well, that was something that I wanted to, I forgot when you were introducing wild fermentation and you said you started flipping through it and realized you'd been making quite a lot of the things and then you got, ended up getting the mm. book. I think it's really important. And you mentioned this to me. I don't think it was on the podcast. We were just talking and you had said um, what you just said about not having a lot of books. And I think that's really important for people to know that if you can't go out and buy a giant stack of books, that's fine. You can start, there's so many resources online that you can look at for free and people will, um, you know, ask for recipes. People will provide them and you don't have to yeah. wait until you can, you know, afford to buy some books or have the room for the books. You can just start right away. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I've got so much from just searching on the internet and through people sharing stuff that yeah. um, it's lovely to have the books and it, it's nice to it be is. able to refer to them, but it's, it it's, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Yeah. And, and just find, the, well, this is a point from one of the other books that I will be going over, but, you know, find people around you that you can um, learn from. Okay, let me let me bring out my book then. Um, yeah, please do. I won't spend too long on this one because... I think we've already covered some of the things I wanted to say about it, but this is also by Sander Alex Katz and it's the art of fermentation. And uh, so yeah. as you said earlier, Allison, wild fermentation is really where you find the recipes. The art of fermentation is the art. <laughs> it's the history. It's the concepts, the processes, it is utterly fascinating. There are some photographs in this one in the middle. I have the um, first edition and then they it was reprinted almost immediately. It um, received the James Beard Foundation Award, the IACP Cookbook Award. You know, it's just a, mm. it's, it's a, it's a thick book. Let's see, it's uh, 500 pages almost. And um, lots and lots of text and it really really set me off i actually got this book before wild fermentation and this mm -hmm. book set me off down the path of fermentation with no looking back because as you say his passion just bleeds through every page he is so passionate about this and he he makes it sound so easy which it is as he said in the quote that you read you don't need to know all the science behind it in order to make it work only until now have we even had you know the level of understanding that's out there about the different um bacterias and things like that but it's always just been you know what grandma did and great grandma did and what worked and what didn't work so so he he really just liberates you in the in these books to to try and to fail he he encourages failure which i love and um experimenting which i have done so much experimentation um thanks to his just encouragement nice nice encouraging failure is such a cool thing because yes failure is so hard to face and it's right. particularly, excuse me, when you've you've bought all the ingredients and you've paid money and you've put your time into it. And I then know. if it fails, you think, oh, but actually, you know, we all know that failure is what 
leads to success you can't have success really unless you fail and so then that's how you learn and that's certainly how I've learned and so it it's really nice to to put that up front and say just just try it and if you fail then you fail and you learn and you move on yes yes and he he tells about his failures in here um I he probably does I think he does a little bit in wild fermentation too but he mentions them in here and he'll say oh I did this and 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 this horrible thing happened um for people who have the book or who are planning to get the book one of my favorite um recipes or it doesn't really give you a recipe so much as instructions but he talks about how to make kombucha candy which is really really fun to do he says in the book again he says oh I soak it and I boil it you know the scoby um, when he gives the process Mm. and then he says my my friend doesn't do that you know so Mm. you have the freedom already there's not a right way there's not a wrong way just a way that's your personal preference and and I prefer not soaking it I like it to have I think I like things more sour as you were saying um yeah but oh, he just has lots and lots of fun stuff in here it is just a fun book to read so if you want a good adventure on fermentation the art of fermentation by Sandra Alex Katz really fun nice yeah, nice. and it looks really, it looks pretty up on your shelf, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember we got it from the library when we were in England, and I think we got about halfway through it. We were kind of, Rob and I were reading it together, and then we moved to Italy, so we had to send it back to the library. Oh, <laughs> that well. was the last time I had it, so I haven't had it since. But maybe one day I'll go back to it and read the rest of it. Yes, yes. One day when you're out on the farm, you can sit up in the sauna and read it. <laughs> Ah, that sounds nice. That sounds really nice. All right. So you've got another book with you, and I'm really eager to hear about it. <laughs> I'm just yeah, ready for so this. <laughs> I just, I don't know where to start with this one. It's so um, wide ranging and interesting. So oh, my third book one, is, yeah, it's 700 pages, Woo! and it's it's not 700 small pages. It's 700 big pages with lots and lots of words in, and it's huge. And it's called The Secret Life of Chocolate. And it's mm. by a UK herbalist called Marcus Patchett. And I tried to think, well, where, where did this come from in my kind of explorations when, when I was thinking about what I was going to say? And I had to trace back where I, how I got to this step. And I remember I went to visit a friend last year and she was making chocolate just literally from the raw beans, grinding it up and melting it with some butter and putting wow. it over Um, nuts and I remembered when I visited her that I I did that when we a long time ago when we first we came to Italy the first time Rob and I were eating raw vegan and I remember I made chocolate at that point and I I actually really enjoyed it and I thought oh I could have a go at that again and my son loves chocolate and I hate looking at the chocolates that are out there when (laughs) when you go to the store even when you go to the health food store they just They've got either butter in them, which you can't eat, or they've got additives, or they've got too much sugar, and they're just they're just not nice. And and I wanted to be able to in, indulge him and give him something that he really loved in a way that I knew what was in it and how it was done. And then in addition, there's another thread to to this in that I don't eat sugar. Um, I haven't actually eaten sugar or um really any fruit for quite a long time now since Gabriel was born and 
I have a kind of a history with chocolate in that I was obese for most of my 20s and the thing that was my kind of cornerstone of that obesity was chocolate and like the most sugary chocolate you could ever imagine I was completely addicted to it like a physical addiction that I would go and buy kilogram bars of white chocolate from the store and eat them all in my room on my own in one go and so I have a really checkered history with chocolate and kind of going back to its roots and learning more about it and learning a process that would involve my son and kind of would walk me through looking at some of the issues that are hidden in my closet somewhere was <laughs> was appealing to me. So I I started looking at how I could make chocolate and I watched some videos on YouTube and I started trying to make some and then basically I fell down a rabbit hole. <laughs> and I, I listened to podcasts and and then I heard the interview with this Marcus Patchett, the author of the book, on a podcast and I downloaded the first chapter of the book and I was completely absolutely just you know mesmerized by it and I wanted to read you the the quote the thing that's on the back of the the dust cover of the book because I looked through the book and I thought what what quotes do I want to share and everything's so specific and then I looked on the back and I thought ah this is what I want to share so if it's okay I'll read you what's on the back of the the dust cover of the book because it'll give you a good idea of what's in there as well so it says the secret life of chocolate is a book about chocolate Not the sweet, mass-produced, fatty confection most of us are familiar with, though. This book is about old-school chocolate, pre-Columbian, Central American, bitter, spicy, foamy, intense, blow-your-socks-off chocolate. Chocolate beverages made with toasted cacao beans, water and indigenous plants. Today, there are many different forms of drinking chocolate in Latin America most of which reflect European influence, incorporating sugar, cinnamon and milk. The aim of this work is to peel back the years of cultural cross-pollination and anatomise the original cacao-based beverages, which were richer, more complex, more potent and darker in every sense than modern forms of chocolate. This book delves into the ancient history of the human relationship with the cacao tree, the Abroma cacao, It dissects the pharmacological properties of chocolate to the fullest possible extent and it divulges the mythical and magical associations of human interactions with this incredible plant. That kind of says a lot about the book. Um, Yeah, so basically it's got in it the history and the societies that grew it and what happened when the Europeans came over to Central America. It's got all the details of the ancestral preparation including recipes and those recipes are juxtaposed with our modern preparation techniques and the health and and taste consequences of of those (laughs) and then it's got a huge section on the medicinal properties of cacao literally to the you know the nth degree so many studies quoted such depth and it looks at it from a western science perspective the physiological side of cacao so the antioxidants the polyphenols the biome enhancing properties the psychoactive side of cacao so the neurotransmitters um, addiction the effect of cacao on mood it looks at it from an alternative health systems perspective and it applies it actually to disease so there's a big section on um, chocolate and asthma chocolate and cardiovascular disease then there's the spiritual section the mythology the ceremonial significance of cacao it's just, it's literally got everything you could possibly ever think of about cacao. It, it's a, an incredible piece of research 
I mean, I know the art of fermentation is a kind of a similar, the, just the dedication, right. the work, the research that was put into this book. It's, it's really a, a tome and we're, we're actually reading it together in the evenings and it, it, we can only do a little bit at a time because there's such depth that you it's can only rich. take in so much. But it's, um, it's, it's a wonderful book and it's opened up areas for me and helped me learn about my own reaction to chocolate and helped me see how chocolate was originally and how we've mutated chocolate into something that it was never meant to be oh. and how that's kind of a, a metaphor for our relationship with, with um, substances, you know, like coffee and chocolate mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how it affects other people. And it's just, it's opened up a whole nother world to me, basically. It really sounds like a life's work when you say 700 pages yeah. and the level of just granularity that the book goes into. What a profound piece and how completely unrecognizable is, well, it's as we're recording this, we're coming up on Easter, which over mm. here in the U.S. means, you know, chocolate rabbits and mm -hmm. things like that everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you know that that you can't that that stuff is I mean I don't even know what to call it like it's nowhere close yeah. to the sort of thing that you're talking about here in in no way shape or form and yet the studies will have these random little bits cited from them as you're saying there's there are incredible properties to cacao and chocolate mm -hmm. in the way that you're discussing it here but um people will say oh well chocolate's good for you and <laughs> I don't yeah oh it just it's not the same thing anymore so it's interesting that you know anyone who had cacao in those ancestral societies would not recognize the no. thing that we call chocolate no, now i mean the fact that they they drank it they didn't eat it like chocolate yes. let alone yes. the taste and the flavor change and cacao was bitter cacao yes. is bitter and it right. was bitter to them and everyone nowadays assimilates you know takes in and says right well cacao that's chocolate that's sweet isn't it sweet, but right. it was never meant to be sweet right it's um again it's a book that that excites me from the from the perspective of changing my attitude, changing mm -hmm. my son's relationship or my son's understanding of chocolate. He will have a different understanding of chocolate to most kids his age at such a different level. Yes. And I'm reading the health, the potential health benefits of chocolate excite me. The detail he goes into and how it has been shown that these health benefits can, could be used for example by people who have cardiovascular problems wow. instead of drugs it, it's just amazing I'm so I'm excited about the health aspect which is you know a big reason why I cook the way I do sure. but I'm also excited about learning the ancestral techniques you know the recipes that are in there and actually seeing how it was eaten and drunk originally and trying that out and and also trying that out with the other ancestral techniques that I've got you know mixing cacao into instead of maybe fermented maize I could mix it into fermented millet because that's what we do in this kitchen you know um it's the ancestral techniques are exciting to me and I'm 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 almost at the point where I'm 
about to launch off on making drinks and that's oh, really that's exciting. Oh, that's going to be really fun. It's so fun to watch <laughs> you on Instagram with all your little treats that you keep popping out and then oh. to think about the drinks. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Yeah. The other thing that, that really excites me about the book is the power that there is in the truth that are in it, in changing mine and other people's attitude and yes. relationship with chocolate because so many people have guilt around chocolate issues around chocolate you know it's such a thing and to be able to take what's the truth of cacao and share it with people and change people's attitudes towards it as a food and change people's um, relationship with it as a food is mm-hmm. has such power behind it and and I'm excited about that as well well, chocolate is, as you alluded just there, so associated with guilt and sin in our verbiage. Mm. You know, every <laughs> every restaurant menu has a, you know, death by chocolate yeah. or sinful yeah. chocolate or guilty chocolate. You know, like why are these words associated with something that it sounds as though you're saying has so many benefits for us but maybe we feel guilty because we've destroyed what it was supposed to be yeah it's such a complex knot of issues you know that because that death by chocolate cake has that much sugar in it and milk in it and dairy in it it changes the way that cacao is and and we're addicted to that sugar and so there's neurochemicals going on in our brain that kind of make us have certain reactions and we feel that guilt what's interesting about the guilt is um that he has mined some research that shows that intention when eating cacao is important and changes the effect of the neurotransmitters in the brain so if you eat your chocolate with the intention that it will make you happier or it will stop you being depressed or that you want it to give you some energy then the effects of the chemicals in your brain are different than if you don't have that intention and then if you are guilty afterwards the beneficial effects of the neurotransmitters in your brain are lost. So if you Stop. have guilt, yeah, I'll, I'll find the quote because it, it's, I read it like seven or eight times. If you have guilt after taking your chocolate, then you are basically disarming the beneficial compounds in your brain to make you have uh, you know, an energetic release of serotonin or dopamine. No way. And it's just like, wow. Now, That's can, incredible. Can labelers and marketers get on top of that when they yeah. sell your lovely chocolates and, and have the right labeling? You know, this chocolate will make you really happy yeah. because yeah. then you'll eat it. Wow, I really do feel happy. This is amazing. <laughs> I, feel, I feel very strongly about the guilt thing because, you know, particularly women... Mm-hmm. have this relationship with chocolate and right. for a large percentage of women in the in our world you know in the in the western world we have a, a black a black relationship you know a dark relationship with chocolate and we have that guilt and it was never meant to be that way and we are no. blocking potential health benefits and we it it shouldn't be part of a woman's you know profile in their life to to have to feel guilt about eating it's something that I feel really strongly about you know that's interesting something that you just said in there because 
well, the whole thing you said was interesting, but something you said in there sparked a thought where I have seen somebody, somebody left a quote somewhere that said, um, whatever it is that they, society, you know, whoever, whatever it is they try to make you feel shame for is connected to your power and they were talking about Mm. you know women's cycles or you know even the female body Mm -hmm. and things like that and of course chocolate is just wreathed in shame for so many people and that is interesting as you're saying that it is connected to so much of our power Mm. I mean it was and I feel like it was actual currency mm. was it not in, um, yeah it was yeah. yeah it was currency yeah and it it feels to me that I'm sort of rounding a circle taking on this information and these techniques and that you know as an example of someone who had shame from chocolate I had it big time you know right. I, I, I spent my the formative years of my life at school when it, you don't want to be obese obese right. like right. and and it feels as if I'm affecting and changing the the bits in my filing cabinet associated mm-hmm. with it and building something new. And I feel very enthusiastic about sharing that with other people. It's like you're going back to that, you know, that inner child and yeah, um, healing trauma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do this work. That's that's, that's so nice. profound, Allison. That's so <laughs> profound. I just love it. Well. I will uh, pull up my last title, which is yeah, another book do. I have. I have mentioned here, but only in passing. Um, but it's called Radical Homemakers. And this isn't a cookbook. It's more of a philosophy. But mm-hmm. I I think we, as we have learned on this podcast, I'm more inspired by the why. And then I will spend as much time as I need to um, talking to people or finding, you know, the specifics on what I need, but I like to know why. So, um, Radical Homemakers, her subtitle is Reclaiming Domesticity from a Consumer Culture. And the name Radical Homemakers kind of, for anybody who uh, in the United States anyways grew up homeschooled maybe they're triggered like no what does this mean you know is this the the woman in the home and the you know this isn't but this isn't that this isn't um that (laughs) Mm -hmm. this this book talks about um well taking back what was once traditional and common knowledge and reclaiming the skills that it you know domestic skills that it used to take to run a a life and a home um, from a culture that is just turned completely into consumerism so um, Mm. there's so many quotes I could read out of the book but I'll pull a few I, I saved a few to read Um, She -hmm. says, the experiment of converting the American household from producers to consumers has been largely a disaster. What's worse, in the process, our culture has lost nearly all its production traditions. Traditional Mm -hmm. knowledge to care for the sick, 
nourish our families, produce our own food, and entertain ourselves has nearly disappeared from our culture, with all of it being transferred to experts. Factory farms, corporate health care, chain restaurants, media conglomerates, who are more interested in maximizing a profit than in conserving or replenishing our living systems. The American citizenry has been convinced that outsourcing our craft traditions will somehow profit the general public. Now she speaks to um, the American experience since that's what she knows, but you've said enough. To, it resonates with me. Yeah, yeah. you said enough to let me know that it, it's more than just here. Um, so um, skipping ahead a couple of paragraphs, she says, the act of producing is creative and joyful. So much enjoyment can be had that there is no time to kill at a shopping mall or sitting in front of the TV. Thus, not only are they lowering their cost, um, she says, uh, radical homemakers are lowering the cost of living through producing. They are also reducing their urge to spend on distractions. Instead, filling their lives with meaningful and pleasurable activity. And I feel like so much of this book just sums up why we're doing what we're doing. Um, yeah, I'm nodding like vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, my five-year-old asked me today, um, why do we have a TV? <laughs> because it's, it's downstairs and we haven't, I think we've used it maybe twice since we moved here um which doesn't mean we've never watched movies because we could watch a movie on our laptop or something but mm-hmm. um we just when are you go when are you gonna watch a movie we fall into bed at night and at yeah uh, you know you you're running until the last minute and then you're up literally with the cock crow in the morning <laughs> you know there yeah i feel the i feel the there. same that when when do people I've forgotten when do people have time to do these things you know we I don't in know. the evening in the evening I suppose we read you know and but I suppose I, that's I even, kind of yeah, taking the place of the TV our our evening literally literally goes you know we we make dinner we have dinner we sit at the table we, we eat it um we get up the kids bring dishes in everybody kind of does chores while I wash dishes and doing all the dishes and reading up the kitchen can take an hour getting everything Mm. ready for the next day, starting anything I'm going to ferment, you know, stirring up the ferments I have sitting on the counter. You know how that goes. And then, um, you know, it's just bed, 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 trying to get everybody into bed. You got to brush teeth, brush hair, uh, put on pajamas, and then we get into bed. And I read a lot to the kids. So we'll read, um, Mm. you know, sometimes I'll read for an hour. And then I want to read too. (laughs) I want to read my own books, you know. Sometimes I read to them so long that I'm I'm just too tired to read my own books. But I like to, I like to at least try to read a few chapters of whatever it is that I'm on of my own, and I save the that time of night for just some real relaxing, like a like a like a novel or something, um, mm. where I'm not highlighting or taking notes, you know, so I can lay in bed with a little, um, you know, non blue light mm. <laughs> book light and read and. And then in the morning, you know, you wake up and um, then I, I do some study reading and then there's breakfast and chores and homeschool and projects. Yeah. And it just, I, I don't know where there's, I don't know where we go. I really, I really like the, the, the fact that she includes entertainment in that quote. You yes, know, that I think We've outsourced entertainment. And it's a yes. huge thing for the, for the children because 
You know, the idea of putting a kid in front of a screen and dumbing down the possibility for the imagination, for the creativity, for the life to come, and then, then getting used to that. So then as that child grows up and becomes an adult, they expect to be entertained because they're not used to the idea of making their own way and understanding how they, they, what they like to do and how they can be entertained and how they can be engaged. Um, We have this huge entertainment industry now that, you know, to a greater extent, we don't really engage with, but it, it's amazing that, for mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of years people just made their own entertainment and now yep. suddenly it's in front of a screen which is oh another podcast because you know that's doing incredible <laughs> things to our eyes and to our brain waves um but it's it's it just it's amazing i'm glad she includes that as well yes i'm really glad she did too because i think it's a profound point that is left out um, of the conversation that a lot of people have both about um, domestic arts and uh just the fabric of a community um being entered able to entertain each other i mean where has dancing gone what happened to push back the chairs and roll up the rugs and everybody dance music Yeah. yeah yeah making our own music um uh, a couple days ago, I was working in my bedroom and Jacob came in and he said, oh, I'm bored. Can I watch a movie? And I said, uh, no. <laughs> and then um, I went back to what I was doing and then I turned around and I had um, a big box of essential oils, like a hundred bottles of oils. And he had them all poured out and he had them <laughs> lined up. And then there was the biggest one in the middle and he goes, um, Oh, these are the knights, and this is their king, and they are waging yeah. war against the purple army. And I was like, "Okay, you're having fun." <laughs> you know, if yeah. if he was watching a show, he, you know, the, the, it wouldn't have yeah. happened. So, yeah, the, but definitely is important. Um, and and the, all throughout, of course, history, you see um, ancestral peoples creating, uh, you know rituals and holidays and Mm. oh no I think it's important I am when I was at school I my my first lot of exams that we do when you're 16 here I chose home economics which is the UK kind of you know um, cooking subject for want of a better word and I used to love it I absolutely loved it but I felt like it wasn't it seemed like it wasn't a proper subject you know like it was something for the girls to do to start with but also something that was just not it wasn't seen in the same way as the other subjects were at school and that culture is through me you know I kind of I felt that and I felt that throughout really my 20s and my 30s coming to the point where I am now and and now I can see how homemaking and radical homemaking is so important and how it's the crucible that can, can change everything in our world but I think there's a huge culture of devaluing, undervaluing the the role of of householding, and yes. and I felt that for many true. years. So I I love the title of this book. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Um, and she's also she also taught the title. You know where you you said that the perception was that home ec was for the girls, and she says mm. you know husband husband housebound husband means housebound because he was there at the house and and working with you and it was two people there was it wasn't um 
you know, females at home and males in the factory. It was everybody participating and keeping everyone alive. I came in inside when my sister was here this past week and I came inside um, after we cleaned up the chicken coop and I said, you know, I've come to realize everything in life, (laughs) everything in life, no matter how refined it is, revolves around two things. And I said, because I was telling her, I feel like my entire day revolves around these two things, whether it's the animals or the kids, uh, yeah. feeding, feeding creatures and getting rid of poop. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think the whole, our whole life just, that's it. <laughs> so there's our radical homemaking. <laughs> so what else is included in the book tell it what what are the chapters for example well it well so she talks about the difference in the book one of her big theses is discussing the difference the contrast between an extractive economy and a mm-hmm. life-serving economy so she mm-hmm. um describes these throughout the book as you know the extractive economy being um basically the uh mining the earth um this is part of you know just what what we have to do to generate business and uh you know make money versus the life-serving economy where the goal is how how meaningful and joyful can a life be so she talks about um the why and the how she has a book divided mm-hmm. into two parts why and how i see um so she actually has a chapter called home economics that's kind of funny since that's what you mentioned i it's called the same thing in the schools here home ec um Mm. you know teaching how to clean and cook i suppose but Mm. um so she just uh the first half of the book she talks about why and uh what what's happening to our society and our families and our economy and um our souls you know we're just so unhappy Mm. and um miserable and and i i I don't know if it's the same there and in the uk but if you drive down the street here then you just well maybe not so much now since everybody's been home for so long but um you just see the houses empty all day dark Mm. empty house after empty house after empty house and then at night you drive past the houses and you see these blue lights flashing inside every house the tvs are on and people are home all in their different rooms watching tv and then they go to bed and then they're gone the next morning and i just Mm. think like why they're all at work making this money to stuff things into this house that they're Mm. not even in Mm. And they're unhappy and they don't like their neighbors if they even know their neighbors. And I don't know. Versus, you know, everybody feels so sorry for the rural families without as much money who are, um, you know, husking corn at night together and talking and eating dinner and and, uh, singing songs. And and you're like, well, who's happier? I mean, really, who's happier? So that's kind of... It's interesting because, you know, in in the past... You know, life for living ancestrally was not easy, you know. No, we have no. Dif- We have different issues now. We don't have so many issues of, you know, survival. We have the psychological right. issues that come from being in this, this situation that we're in. But now we have an opportunity to take the advances that we've moved as a society and yet run our life on a structure 
that's more ancestral. So we're not worried necessarily, hopefully, about, you know, are we going to freeze to death? Are we going to be eaten by some animal? And yet we can, we have the option to learn these techniques and to run our lives in a way that is more ancestral and therefore more satisfying. That's, that's what I, since the more I point my life in that direction, the happier I become and the more sane I become. And we're in a, we're in a amazingly sort of potentialized, that's not really a word, but moment where we can take the best of what we've got and what we've learned but also of the past yes I was, you took the words right out of my mouth and <laughs> I just had this conversation with my sister I told her I have no desire to go back to the you know good old days mm. um, yeah. because they were hard old days yeah. you know peasants yeah. died by the thousands yeah. but um, I, I told her that I always think you know we can now take the wisdom of Mm. the past and then just some of the technological conveniences i mean i can walk across the hallway where i am i have a hallway (laughs) i can walk across Mm. the hallway and turn a knob and hot water will flow out i mean come on when in the history of man has that been possible other than you know Mm. the in the fairly recent times so we can take the ancestral wisdom and then we can take the modern technology and have the best of both worlds and um hopefully enjoy amen amen to that all right thank you for sharing that book (laughs) yeah it's a really fun one um we've covered uh three books each and so much in between and i'm so excited for uh seeing whatever we talk about next i feel like next time you could bring back the chocolate book and just tell us the next you know, <laughs> i have a little i'll just have a little chocolate circle shall i yes. <laughs> the chocolate book discussion night was there anything else that we wanted to get captured on this recording together no, I don't think so. Not from, okay, not from my awesome. Well, then we'll we'll let this go as our longest podcast to date. And I can't Woo-hoo. wait to come back and record another one. <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Allison. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.